everybody, this is Colin, and welcome to episode six of season four of the Abstract Podcast. Today, we're going to decide the champion of the fast food bracket. We're going to talk about Christian nationalism, a listener question, and some research about Gen Z. As is tradition, we're back in the studio with a beverage. Aha! <laughs> it is an aha. Today we've got a uh, strawberry cucumber. On a scale of one to ten, what would, how would you rate this one? Say definitely ten as far as uh, tasting better than that sounds, than that combination sounds. But it's yeah, actually, it's really good. It is actually good. I decided to branch out and get something non-citrus. I'm more of a citrus guy, but this actually this is pretty good. Yeah. Colin just pointed out that when you search abstract in a podcast um, feed, like Google Podcasts, in Google Podcasts, if you search abstract, we're in the top five. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just the med- word abstract. It's not even abstract podcast. Yeah. You search abstract. Man. Wow. Hmm. All right. It's Thursday. Nope. It's Wednesday. Colin, what'd you do today? Anything exciting happened to you? Uh, not really. Very ordinary day. Went to school, came here. That's what about you? <laughs> More exciting than that. Um, okay, so one thing that was potentially exciting this morning was I was on the way to school, and like I was right in the sweet spot where I left where I'll get to class right on time. So I oh, don't yeah. want to get in any traffic jams, but don't have to drive super fast. Well, anyway, I came up on, it's like, you know, you come through the curves when you're kind of coming towards Tacoa, mm-hmm. like once it goes down to the 45, and there was a wreck. And so there was like an ambulance, a fire truck, some cars backed mm-hmm. up. But the most alarming part was the one vehicle, which seemed like maybe it was involved in the wreck, was like the sheriff, uh, the work detail van. It's like when Ooh. you got the inmates who were out there doing the work detail, was just like sitting there. Any speculations? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like maybe they like staged something to break free and run out into the woods or something, or maybe they were in an accident. I don't know. So we'll be checking the news for that one. Yeah, no kidding. Might be some topics for future shows. One exciting thing was yesterday I got to go to the girls' camp and shoot a video for them. Oh, yeah. yeah like the Fair fun. Play Girls' Camp. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Very yeah, cool. they're looking for a cook. They're down to oh, one, yeah. one cook. So. Yeah, we're in cell group with one of the cooks, and it's been a consistent prayer request. She has been pulling the load by herself. So yeah, that other people have be been lot. pitching Cooking in and helping for, out, but, yeah. man, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So shout out to that. If, if you want to cook, go to Fair Play Girls' Camp. You can cook for a lot of people every day. Absolutely. All right. We've got the fast food brackets, and this is the final, the championship, the the, um, the enchilada. Yep. Wendy's versus Chick-fil-A. That is what the people have decided on the bracket of champions. That's and what I, it comes I, down I'm, to. I'm just – I cannot believe Wendy's made it to the championship. Yeah. Wendy's – All those other Wendy's choices. beat out a lot of a lot of good competition. They beat out um, like In-N-Out Burger, Whataburger – Taco Bell, Panda Express, Firehouse Subs, Jimmy John's, Dairy Queen. At least half of those should have been Wendy's. <laughs> should have been. With- Are you not a Wendy's fan? I mean, I like Wendy's, but compared to Firehouse or Taco Bell, holds no water. True. So you've got Chick-fil-A, I take it. Yeah, I'm going Chick-fil-A. I do have an updated testimonial about Chick-fil-A. Last week I gave my testimony about the Lord's Chicken, and I have another one this week. So they kind of shorted me on the fries, so I left a review. They got back to me, and they were like, there's a free fry. You know, make it right. We're sorry about what happened. Well, I got in line to use the free fry, and when I checked, there were two rewards. They put in a free milkshake and a free fry. Oh, man. Make it right. So, I mean, that is the the double portion. Yeah. (laughs) Double portion of the Old Testament right there. So, I will give a hearty vote to Chick-fil-A. And on the Bracket of Champions website, Chick-fil-A did take the winner. Um, that is what the people said. People have spoken. And did we hear from, uh, we heard back from Davis. Is his book on the way? Yes, I ordered his book. Um, his book is an older book, so lots of versions, lots of editions, mm. and I picked the one with the coolest copy. It was also the cheapest. Huh. So That helps. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to pull it up here really quick. It was called, it was something about cults. Hmm. I'm a little, a little blurry on my cult books. 
And Ravi Zacharias wrote in the one edition, but I, I uh, bought the edition. He did, he not, did, not. He did not write it. <laughs> That's kind of my my protest. Oh, well, I'll find it. But, yeah, congratulations to Davis who won the book, and the book is on the way. So Awesome. Yeah, also speaking of giveaways, we have – this will be coming out on Thursday. On Friday, we should be launching another giveaway through um, just the Eagle Radio Instagram. I think it's going to be a $15 to Burger King. Hmm. Speaking of, did, was Burger King in the bracket of champions? I think Burger King was. I don't think they made it, but maybe around. I don't even think they made it around. One yeah. and done. Well, regardless, you can go get yourself a Whopper. All right, Colin, what is on the agenda today? Well, what if we start? Um, what if we actually start with a listener question? So, a listener wrote in and said. Does it matter what beliefs or actions are of the person who creates things we enjoy? Musicians, writers, filmmakers, etc. Matt Skiba is a good reference, which I didn't know who he was, but he is of the band Blink-182. Blink-182, okay. Classic. Um, His song, Voices, raises some questions. I'm not familiar with that song, are you? I'm not. I'm going to look it okay. up as you continue. Um, and then I also said, you know, what about Robbie Zachariah and so on. So, Javen, how do you think through you, uh, you listen to a lot of music, you read a lot of things. How do you sort through, um, you know, how do you sort through those understandings of work by people who hold different beliefs or belief systems than you do? Yeah. I do want to clarify. I actually do know this song. I think it's also called I Miss You. I could be wrong. But uh, yeah, great Blink-182 song, classic. Personally, hmm, this is a good, I mean, this is a good question. I think it gets to the heart of kind of, and the listener even mentioned the um, the Ravi Zacharias thing. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we, once we know someone is like tainted or their beliefs are, are not good, like yeah. what do we do with the, the work that we, that, They've put out, you know, kind of before that, maybe. I don't know. I'm interested to hear your feedback as well. But I would say, personally, I think you can still enjoy their work, Mm. um, even if they hold, you know, different positions than you or even if they believe things that you explicitly believe are wrong. Um, I think an atheist can make great music, and I think that that can be worth listening to. Maybe that's kind of a conversation about common grace. That um, people even who aren't believers still have the ability to make things which are worthwhile and beautiful. They might be doing it for different reasons than I would mm. do it. What do you think? Yeah, no, I um, I'm kind of run off the top of my head, but I think like this this kind of conversation um is all about the triage of how we establish our guardrails um as far as like what's in what's out of yeah. acceptable content. Um, so. I, for one, would take a similar approach, you know, kind of a Kuiperian common grace um, in that with bearing the image of God, there is something uh, inherently um, bearing the nature of how God created us as creative beings that will reflect that image of God. Same as how I think not all Christians will make good art simply because they're Christians, because we also are tainted by the fall. And so some things we create will be more reflective of the fall. And so obviously that makes it to where it's kind of this muddled um, ground um, where there has to be a lot of discernment along the way. And um, I, for one, am, you know, I don't, I don't uh, buy a lot of the arguments, um, you know, ones, especially even of, you know, if you think of it as far as like what, restaurant or coffee shop you're going to go to based off of the president of that company's political views. That just seems exhaustive, like to where we have yeah. to get to and find out everybody's views. And um, anyway, well, it seems to seems to be a, a, uh, a non-starter um, to try to do that. Yeah. And I think this also kind of just um, even kind of in the conversation we've just been having, it's kind of inherent in the language is us and them. Mm-hmm. And, but, like, if you even ask, like, well, what does that mean? Because it's like, as a Christian, if I'm making things, like, I'm still in process. I'm not mm-hmm. fully sanctified. I still have my flaws and darkness and all right. that, too. So I think, yeah, absolutely, people people can still make things mm-hmm. that are worthwhile, even if, if they hold really different 
positions than you. I mean, right. and even if you think about something like food, mm. I, I don't really care what the person who's making my food believes. I mean, the the fact that they're they're producing really good food right. is is a thing in itself. And I think if you're a believer, then you're able to see all of your work as an act of worship to right. God. Like you can see the preparation of that chef, chef salad as an act of worship. If you're an unbeliever, you probably aren't really bringing that mm-hmm. to bear, but I think it's still fine to eat at restaurants who aren't Christian people. Yeah. And we, and if we think of it as in, in psalmic language that the heaven and earth are full of the glory of God, we will find God in surprising places. And, and he is in all things and in him, all things hold together. So we will find him in many places at many times. And, um, so I, I, I mean, I even think of it like a, a New Testament scholar like Bart Ehrman, who's a world-renowned New Testament scholar who people have learned so much from, um, but who's not who's not a Christian necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he would believe in a historical Jesus, but I, I, I'm too fuzzy on that to speak very intelligently on it. But, um, but he does good scholarship work that has benefited many Christian people who are also in the same kind of field of study, um, and and I, I think it's fine to learn from from someone like that. I do think on the flip side, to tease out this other side, I think we can also use things strategically like with what happened with Ravi Zachariah. Um, we're like, we're wanting to distance ourselves from that as both to as statements, both of, um, learning how to move forward better as Christian organizations, whatever else, um, or things like, um, you know, a lot of things that are more maybe manufactured by, um, the Uyghur people right now and how sanctions are going in mm-hmm. to try to create pressure to for China to back down on this genocide that's happening. Um, and like those things in my mind are entirely appropriate measures to be taken um, towards towards a better good. So again, it's all triage about how you um, work towards what those guardrails are. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think it's interesting the, if, if we kind of think of different scenarios, the way that we would work this out, mm-hmm. um, we think, I think we just kind of think of some things as like, and maybe they are, more spiritual and more important than other things. So, for instance, you know, maybe we raise the question, can I listen to a song that was written by a non-Christian? Mm-hmm. But what about using a math textbook that was written by a non-Christian? We mm-hmm. say, well, yeah, well, that's just math. That That's not like sacred right. stuff. That's just math. But then when it gets into these things about art, we're teaching, we're kind of like, well, you know, but I, I don't really know if that's a good way to look at things, like fragmented like that. I think I think we find ourselves tripping over it pretty quickly, or if, at least yeah. finding that, you know, um, the the methodology in which we got there um, is pretty humble at best, and which can be easily toppled, um, yeah. or we have a hard time defending. Yeah. So I guess I would say that um, kind of my the way I would approach this is just, I mean, I think judge the work on its own. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then see if it's worthwhile. And if it, if it's something that is, is worthy and noble Mm -hmm. to think about, then think about it and listen to it and, and take it in. And Um, I think that's, I mean, that's just, that's kind of like reading one one or listening to a song one one. You have to submit yourself to that work first before you can even understand it, what's going on. And so if you're immediately, you know, if you have to do the research first to see who wrote it, all this stuff, it's not submitting to the work that was done. Yeah. And, and so I'd question how far you could go with that. Like in the question of someone like Ravi, I think I think it's also complicated because you're thinking, well, if this is the kind of things this person was doing mm-hmm. and they produced this work, <laughs> what kind of really bad ideas might be encoded in the work? And that might be a reason to back off of it. Or like it's kind of maybe the same thing of like if you know that your friend – um, cheats on their spouse all the time, and then that friend is giving you relationship advice. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, right. eh, maybe not. Like, encoded in that is probably some of your really bad <laughs> ideology and practice. Yeah. So, I mean, different things is different. But as far as art goes, I have no problem with um, taking in art by non-Christians at all. Yeah. I think of it kind of um, even along the lines of the Old Testament story Um the name that comes to my mind is Naaman, and I'm not sure if it's Naaman or not. Um, but anyway, so he begins to serve Yahweh, um, but he finds himself in a predicament because he's the aide to an aging king um, who is a pagan king. And so he asks, oh man, this is too funny. maybe Elijah, I forget, or Elisha. But he asks, after, 
he gives himself the Yahweh. Well, what am I supposed to do now? Because my job is helping, basically helping this pagan king mm-hmm. kneel and worship his false gods. And Elisha just tells him to go in peace mm-hmm. um, and that he can go do this job in peace. And and so I think there's something to, I don't know, glean there about how that interaction happens that um, to listen to a song is not to endorse it. Um, even in this case, to help someone kneel, uh, an elderly person kneel so that he can pray to a God that is not Yahweh. Yeah. Um, helping. Even seemed okay. Right. Just helping another person as yeah. an act of worship itself. Yeah. So that's kind of where I would shake out with it as well. Um, but anyway, good question. And again, if any more uh, listeners have any questions, please send them in. We, we enjoy yeah. reading them and thinking about them. Um, okay, let's move on, Javen, and let's talk about Christian nationalism for a second. Um, a topic that has been talked about at length um, yes. lately, um, especially since January 6th, and a lot of that being very appropriate um, with what happened there. Uh, but this was from Russell Moore's uh, weekly newsletter. and I think his, his newsletter is clever, clever because his name is Russell Moore, and it's called Moore to the Point, yeah. and he spells Moore like his last name. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah very clever. Um, but he asked the question. He usually top, tackles like a couple different doc, topics each newsletter. But this week's was, um, one of them was, what does Christian nationalism do to the gospel? Um, and so, Jamie, let's talk a little bit about uh, what we liked about this article. Um, what parts for you? Uh, did you appreciate about this one? Which first, we should probably just kind of describe what this article was about a little bit. Um, but it was basically a response to a questioner who asked him, what does um, Christian, uh, Christian nationalism do to the witness of the gospel um, when we conflate Christianity with blood and soul authoritarian identity politics? Um, what does it do to our credibility to the world? And that was and then this piece is his response to that. Did, I'm going to hold off just for a second. Did you see the article by Andrew Whitehead or his people about like 10, 10 ways to spot Christian nationalism? Yes. Do you want to look that up, see if you can find it? I can see if I can find that, yes. Yeah, so this article, um, his he just goes ahead and kind of answers it right up front, and then he, he gets into more kind of behind his answer. But he says, uh, what does Christian nationalism do to the gospel? That's the question I was asked this past week, and my answer, nothing. And I stand by that. If by gospel we mean the objective reality of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and reign, offering, recon- offering reconciliation between humanity and God. Oh, yeah. But I think my questioner meant instead what this global movement, conflating Christianity with blood and soil and author- authoritarian identity poli- politics, can't talk, does to the church's witness to the gospel, to our credibility, to a watching world. And that is a different question altogether. So, sort of. Um, along this line, I thought it was interesting. He uses the example of Mr. Rogers <laughs> and short caveat. I don't know if I said this on the podcast. I don't think I did. I talk in my sleep every now and then. And, um, did I, did I tell you this? I've never heard I don't this. think so. It's been about like a week and a half ago, I think. Um, cause I don't ever remember talking in my sleep. My wife just says sometimes I'm mumbling things and I think I like jerk and twitch around a lot. She said that the other night I just... I said, just like as clear as day, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> just like right in the middle of the night. And I I never even have watched Mr. Rogers, so I don't really I've know. I've only that. watched the documentary and a couple from. little reruns. So um, Mr. Rogers was asked if he minded the satires of him that would show up often in American popular culture, such as those of Eddie Murphy in the 1970s era Saturday Night Live. He said he did not, with one exception. Some viewers of a local station were told. Some viewers of a local station somewhere told Rogers of this parody, which Rogers described himself. And so basically, what happens is, a guy dressed up like Mister Rogers, and he said, "Now, children, take your mother's hairspray and your daddy's cigarette lighter, and press the buttons, and you'll have a blowtorch." <laughs> and now he thought that was really funny, of course. Well, we were able to put a stop to that, but he would do a different tip like that every day in the guise of Mr. Rogers. Not very child-friendly tips. Mm -hmm. Rogers was alarmed not simply because there was someone on television teaching children to be arsonists, but because this person was doing it in the guise of Mr. Rogers. 
He could have leveraged Rogers' long-cultivated reputation and trust with children to do, to tell them to do something that could harm them and others. And that's why he went on, he cared, and went on the Comedy Hour and some of local TV stations to put a stop to this. So I thought that was a really interesting way to kind of frame the problem. When someone is, um, like, leveraging the reputation, yeah, well, Mr. Rogers in this case, to try to get kids to do something Mr. Rogers would never want them to do, that's when it becomes problematic. But it wasn't problematic just because Mr. Rogers was offended. Right. Right. No, exactly. Um, because one one interesting tweet actually came from um, Dwight from The Office, which I've never even seen The Office, but I, you just know who Dwight is right. just from living. Um, <laughs> but he, he tweeted that the metamorphosis of Jesus Christ from a humble servant to the abject a humble servant of the abject port to a symbol that stands for guns rights, prosperity theology, anti-science, limited government that neglects the destitute, and fierce nationalism is truly the strangest transformation in human history. And so I think that gets at what um, about how Russell Moore set up this article and how Mr. Rogers felt in that um, the ideas and realities he was trying to spread and that he built a reputation on, that's the part that was manipulated for this other guy's gain. And so I think that's what Russell Moore is talking about when he talks of what does he mean by Christian nationalism? Because people mean different things when they say mm-hmm. Christian nationalism. It's kind of another buzzword that you need to first hear. What are people claiming with that word uh, before you even know what to do with it? So, I, you know, what's happening or one thing that, I, you know, I've seen happening is that when we, we talk about Christian nationalism, basically it's people painting Jesus in a light so that you can like you said it's it's about you know america first as christians we want america to be a christian nation and kind of a shining light mm-hmm. on the hill to the rest of the world um you know it's lent right now and so i was going to ask you also how kind of your lent thing is going but i had said on here earlier that my lent decision was to read the sermon on the mount every day mm-hmm. and um i have missed a couple days but it's actually it's been really Interesting. It's something I've never done before. We go back to the same scripture every single day for a month, and I'm really enjoying it. But um, it's it's really it's it's showing me, or it's putting in my mind just a side, or I guess just the characteristics of of Jesus and of the kingdom. Every single morning to read the words where Jesus, looking at his disciples, he said, "Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God." Mm-hmm. He said, "Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh." Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Right. And he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are wed, well, well, uh, well fed now. And woe to you when people speak well of you. <laughs> so when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you look at you look at this, it is upside down from the kind of teaching that wants to associate ourselves with a world power Mm-hmm. Make America great again. Make America Christian, blood and country. It's just I just don't see how the two can be the same. But I think, um, because I, I think the the big like with what you were just reading right there, the phrase because of me, like you who are persecuted because of me, because I think that's yeah, not that's, just persecuted. <laughs> well, that's because that's the the um, mobilizer message of mm-hmm. a lot of Christian nationalism is we are under threat, we are under persecution. This was promised. This is when we need to take our stand. Um, kind of rhetoric, and and I think you know what's inherent in there is well, it, it's kind of this idea that um, we are hated, um, we are the minority, and this is what the Bible says would happen. But I think the problem is the question of well, why are you <laughs> hated, and and I think what's become right, clear is while some of the caricatures of evangelicalism are definitely not true and are just that caricatures. There are some very disturbing realities about that we saw fleshed out January 6th, especially, mm-hmm. um, but even before in, in rhetoric and in the past four or five years, especially. Um, just different ways it's manifested itself. Um, different white nationalism coming more out of the closet, more neo Nazi cloaked with a cross kind of uh, movements. So, yeah. And then, you know, if there's any doubt, you just keep reading a little bit farther. And Jesus says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn them to the other. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. 
Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I mean, I want to talk about this because maybe I'm wrong, but it just I just don't see how Christians who want to live this way could ever come into serious power or how you could ever run a Christian nation because they would just give their stuff away and they would love their enemies. Like, would they have a military? Would they, would they strike back at people? And so just, if you take Jesus seriously, I don't even think you can, I don't want to, I want to be careful what I say. It doesn't make sense to me how you can even want America to be Christian because if America was Christian, I dare say, we would have been gone a long time ago. Mm. Do, you, do you agree? Like, do you see what I'm saying? I think I see what you're saying. And I think what you're putting a finger on is more of a, is, from what I understand, a little bit of a tension between like a Francis Schaeffer kind of approach, more of a neo-reformed approach, and more of an Anabaptist approach, mm-hmm. um, based on how I understand those. And so, so you're like a Francis Schaeffer would be more like we use these positions um, to kind of basically perform damage control would be kind of the understanding. So government exists as it's a God-ordained institution to kind of um, keep some semblance of order. Um, and that's that's reflecting how God ordered creation in the very beginning. Um, and that's part of the divine mandate. And therefore, that's how we participate in it now. Whereas a more Anabaptist approach, which is what you're saying, which I would have more um, inkling storage is more, we are simply here to live as a, um, different kind of community that bears witness to a different reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that way we could never, you know, began a Baptist claim is that to be in that kind of position of damage control would be coercive and therefore not be a kingdom ethic. Um, I think, so. I don't know if that yeah. puts words on your attention at all. Cause I feel that too. And, and I definitely have more inklings towards than anabaptist approach towards it um but i mean i don't think it's to say that anyone who has a position of authority can't be a christian i mean that's obviously not the case yeah it's not like hierarchies right because even in like the smallest tiniest village i mean there's still a leader someone Mm -hmm. has power someone's on top so it's not just that you can't have power but it's just i don't really understand how you can reconcile the concept of making a world power Christian. Yeah. I mean, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. I just, I don't really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The one line I really liked in, in his article in, uh, he was actually, he's quoting from researcher, which is named Tobias Kramer. Um, but anyway, this Tobias Kramer, um, I thought it was really fascinating. He traced different Christian nationalist movements throughout history. Like this is no new thing to use. Right. Which I think how he describes it is religion to be the means or motivation for authoritarian regimes. And so he sees that um, like in all throughout history, but specifically more now, like in Proud Boys, neo-pagan symbolism of shamans and Vikings, and then as well as the slavery cause of the Confederacy. Um, But then anyway, so the line he said that I really liked is he says that this kind of Christianity finds much more inspiration from the pagan romanticism for a lost cause and death and glory Mm. than by the Christian hope for redemption and life after death. Yes. I remember reading that line too. And I was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you get more inspiration and romanticism for a lost cause and death and glory than you do for hope and redemption and well-being, Mm -hmm. you might be a Christian nationalist. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, I love that line there. Um, and then, yeah, he, he defines it in other places as a means to an end Christianity, which I think is what you're getting at with what you were saying there. Cause if you would use Christianity to, to be the means to get to be the world power, that just doesn't seem to jive in even in the least bit with the spirit of the sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Something you said earlier, this reminded me, um, that, that this, you know, conflating nationalism or these nationalistic feelings with Christianity, thats it's not a new thing. Right. Um, I actually, <laughs> it's kind of a stressful day. I had to take the first written exams for the Bible and theology hmm. thing. So, yeah. What was co- today's topic? Well, it, so we get them in threes. So there's two questions from each class that you've taken. 
So I had a question from the general epistles class, okay. or two questions, the two questions from the Romans and Galatians class, and two questions from Old Testament theology. And then on Friday, I'm going to do the Genesis, critical issues in theology, and one more that I can't remember. So I think I think it went well. Wow. He was very kind and gave us the questions ahead of time, so you could kind of prepare. Yeah. But anyway, oh, and Romans. Romans and Galatians is the one next week. Did I say that? I'm not sure. Yes. So anyway... We, I'm taking this class called Romans and Galatians this semester. And so um, the way my professor kind of construed it is Galatians is about what the gospel is not, and Romans is about what the gospel is. And so in Galatians, Paul mounts these 14 arguments against the Judaizers who are coming into mm-hmm. this church and convincing them of something that's just not true. And the Judaizers' argument is that you you need Jesus, you need faith in Jesus, but then you also need the law of Moses. Right. They want to kind of they want they want both. But what I found was really interesting was they don't do this just so that people are better people. They, the reason they want this is because if all these Jews, all of a sudden, no one needs to keep the law anymore to be a Christian, then they feel like we've lost our place in society, like we're powerless now. And so they're pushing super hard. They want all the new converts to have to keep the whole law. They want them to do circumcision, eat the right foods. You can only hang out with certain people. And basically what this is doing is it's keeping the Jewish customs and Jewish way of life as the status quo and as the um, the book I was reading said, like, cultural imperialism. That's what they wanted. <laughs> so it's much more than just this, like, morality stuff. And what Paul says is, like, no, you believe in Jesus and that's it. Mm. It's faith alone. So I thought that was really interesting. This nationalistic um, conflation with the gospel is nothing new at all. Yeah, yeah, and, and the thing— yeah, because another thing in Galatians that I've always liked, which I like, I would agree with that. I tend towards a little bit more of like uh, edging towards like a new perspective on Paul, which is more like his arguments were that uh, Judaizers, where, where Galatians get a, a lot of time used as a passage to talk about faith and works or, or like works righteousness. Um, my understanding of it is, which would be more of the new perspective, which would be, it's less about that. And it's more about covenant identity, which is that the Jews were pushing for, yes, you had to believe in Jesus, but you also had to be circumcised because circumcision was the mark of being marked as the covenant people of God. So it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's along the same lines, subtle nuance there, but it's still the same thing. Cause I think it's in chapter five when Paul, I think it's Galatians five, when he finally just puts it down and says, you know, there's no slave nor free Greek Jew like all of that has been yeah all of that has been summed up in Jesus Christ and and um, so I think that should make us super hesitant about you know I think one of the biggest markers of Christian nationalism that we've even talked about today is this language of the other versus the the insider outsider kind of Mm -hmm. language and I think with Paul we see that there's a oneness in in Christ that is meant to be inclusive and, yeah, it's, and it's transcendent it, of like any boundaries right, we've come up with so far. Right. American, right. uh, conservative, liberal, yeah. whatever it's, it's transcendent of all of those. And it's uniting around a person, which is kind of where Russell Moore ends, where he talks about Jesus' words from John of being, I am the way, instead of telling them where the way is, he says, I am mm. the way yeah. and the truth and the life. And so I think that's, you know, that's part of the impetus of Galatians as well. So, Anyway, good stuff there and lots more that could be said about um, how to talk about Christian nationalism. Um, but that's enough for today because Did, we want to move on. Oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Did you find that article or no? I I couldn't really find an article. I found they've written a book about it. Okay. Um Okay, I thought it was on the Holy Post. I thought they were um there, Okay, there so you did some... a tweet thread about it. Okay. Was it Andrew Whitehead? Uh, Samuel Perry, who co-wrote the book with okay. Andrew Whitehead. I'm really interested in... I found Andrew Whitehead... He was at Clemson University, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I was doing a paper, I can't remember on what, and I, I was coming across his research and using a bit of it, and I see, like, now with all the stuff that's been popping up, like, his sociology about Christian nationalism, that's kind of his specialty, has really come to the fore. I guess maybe that's what you do. Like, you pick out a, an area of research and then hope everything <laughs> just flies to the fan and in that little area then you get popular i don't know but i really want to read his book i forget what it's called 
Uh, Taking America Back for God. Yes. Christian nationalism, and I can't read the rest. Yeah. Maybe this summer I'll get to it. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe I'll win a free book on a podcast, and that's what I'll order. If if I want a free book, I would probably order that one. All right. So, sorry. To launch into our third and final segment here, um, Gen Z is an interesting topic. And, you know, one thing I've been um, just kind of doing in my own life is just – it's what Jordan Peterson would say, allowing the world to reveal itself to you, which sounds really far out. But, like, just trying to pay attention to when, like, two seemingly random things mm-hmm. pop up and then just being like, hey, maybe I should pay attention to that. And so one small way is Gen Z. I um, I listened to a podcast that was talking about Gen Z, and then a friend told me that they were preparing a sermon about Gen Z. And so I was like, maybe that's something I should pay attention to. This yeah. is... This has revealed itself to me. So, yes, please continue. No, so we're talking through, we mentioned it last week, but Springtide Research Institute, um, led by Joshua Packard. Packard, there we go. Yeah, because when he was on the show, I was like, J.I. Packard? Is he still alive? J.I. Packard just just (laughs) died. Yeah. Um, Yeah, what was that, a year or two ago, I think. But not the same guy. No, different guy. Um, anyway, so they released their report, which is, by the way, in a really cool digital format. Um, one of the coolest digital formats I've ever done for a print book. Yeah, it actually, um, it didn't feel so mechanical. Like when you right. push the page turn, like the page actually turns. And it's very, and if you like, put your cursor in the top right of the page, like it looks like you're thumbing through oh, the pages. Okay. It's <laughs> like, pretty cool. Should have like a finger licking yeah. button. Anyway, the link is on our Google Doc if you guys want to look yeah. at it. It's pretty cool. Um, so we don't have time to go through all of this, but we could talk through a couple of just general observations from reading through. It's just page after page of data. Um, I think around 45 pages of just statistics. Yes, but it's done in a really uh, aesthetically pleasing way. They do a really good job of animating this stuff. Yes, they do. Yeah, I'll let you kind of, I think you read more of this than I did. I'll let you. Uh, Okay, so First off, one of the major observations that was a pretty obvious one, which is basically a continuation of the millennial generation, which for both of us, we're kind of nomads. We are in mm-hmm. the middle of, so Gen Z kind of ends at roughly 23, 24 range, and that's when millennial starts, and that's right our age. So I never know quite what to classify myself. I feel more like a millennial. Yeah, I, I think um, we're millennials. <laughs> I really I, do. Yeah, when I look at how millennials you know, seem to understand the world, I would definitely say that's more of my influence. But um, I digress. Back to Gen Z. So one of the main things was that it continued the rise of, for millennials, in how um, the rise of the unaffiliated, which are these would be referred to as the nuns. So uh-huh. not the Catholic nuns, but the no religious <laughs> affiliation. Yeah. So um, for 18 to 34-year-olds, which is a huge age range, if we could just appreciate that like so much changes in those years but they are grouped together so um anyway it went from in 1980 roughly 12% to now it's all the way up to 34% wow um and that's the highest jump all have trended up slightly the nuns um, yes all the age groups so 65 and older in 1980 were down only about like i don't know 3% roughly and they're up to about 11% now but by far the greatest jump was definitely um, Gen Z. Um, and I was listening actually to a podcast where J.I. <laughs> J. Packard, no, Joshua Packard yeah. was on this morning. And he was saying it's important to realize that when they mark none, it's not that they're just like nihilist, right? right? They still, it's, it's not that you don't believe in anything spiritual or have spiritual things in your life. It's just that they just don't identify with the church, really. Right. There's some really good data that we will get to about that. Um, but, they, yeah, they don't identify with a historical, um, what we could call an orthodox religion, um, Catholicism, Christianity, or not Catholicism, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam. Yeah, it's just none. It's just none. Yeah. Um, another thing, uh, it's a very lonely generation. Um, like, percentages are, uh, I'm trying to pull up some of the data real quick here. But yeah, it's, the, it's the phrase roughly, is, I feel completely alone. Yeah. Percentages of 13 to 25-year-olds by race and age who agree by responding always or sometimes to the statement, I feel completely alone. I was just like, oh, my goodness. It's 18 to 25-year-olds. It's 39%. Yeah, it's, it's a little over one out of every three people you would talk to in that age range. 
Yeah, it's, that's so fascinating because, I mean, this is, the I think, the first generation who has grown up connected to everyone and everything mm-hmm. at every single moment of the day. Like, right. you have... These are true digital natives. Yeah, they, they have, have they were born one. with technology in yeah. their hand, and 39% of them say, I feel completely alone. Yeah. That was striking to me. Yeah, for sure. And, well, I'll, I'll get to that later. Uh, another thing, though, we talked about how they don't identify with major religions they also don't want to identify with institutions because they do not trust institutions yeah that was another thing this guy was talking about on the podcast i was listening to this morning he was saying that you know we've been seeing a really um i guess like long spanning trend of this distrust of institutions and he brought up the story which i thought was really interesting you know if you think about someone from the greatest generation this would be like i think my great grandpa right these would be the guys World war ii yeah yeah you know, 40s. They, yeah. they got a public education in high school. They probably went, and this is generalizing, but mm-hmm. they went and worked for a big company. He mentioned like Land Lakes. You go work there. They got called into service by the U.S. military. They went. They served their country. They defeated um, the Nazis, right. communism. They came back. They worked for that big company for another 30 years. They retired. They got a pension and... They might have passed away. Their their wives are still living on a pension. I mean, these are the people who had trust in institutions mm-hmm. and who built institutions. And who thought they were doing, um, you know, they were ridding the world of a great external evil. It wasn't even right. an existential, existential one. It was, it was tangible. It was real. You could see the pictures. You could yeah. live the reality. But it's like ever since that, our, our trust in institutions has just been waning and waning right. and and um, what he pointed out about Gen Z was it's not that they're the first ones who don't trust institutions, but they're some of the first who have been raised by people who don't trust institutions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how that bleeds over. Um, because I thought it was interesting. We talked about religion and religion is right in the middle as far as institutions in which young people trust the least. Um, so f- they ranked it a 4.9 out of 10, 10 being complete trust, one being no trust at all. Organized religion, <laughs> 4.9. The lowest is the presidency. Yeah. And then the highest trust, but still, even the highest trust is only 5.4. It's barely over half, and that's in nonprofits. Yeah. So you have nonprofit organizations, banks, the medical system. This is in order, highest to lowest. Excuse me. Public schools, organized religion, media, Congress, big business, and the presidency. The presidency is right. at four out of 10. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And and yeah, so what's yeah? Let's talk about this a little bit because what's fascinating is that it's not that these are the narrative of what Charles Taylor calls just subtraction stories, which is that these young people are just they're getting rid of God, they're getting rid of um, any kind of supernatural um, mm-hmm. or enchantment of the world. Um, it's all just being excluded more and more and more a subtraction story until eventually you're left with exclusive humanism. He says that's not actually quite the case, um, and that's backed up here with data because, like, what these young people are saying is that, um, you know, more than 50% said they were affiliated with a religious tradition, but they have no trust in religious institutions. Um, or of the 50% who were affiliated. Right. No. No, no, no. 50- if you were affiliated with a religious tradition, right. more than 50%. Had little to no trust in the religion. Right, you just don't yeah. believe in church as an institution. But it's uh, this is this would be the crowd that is the spiritual but not religious. Uh, you yeah. know, they believe life has meaning and purpose. In fact, uh, over eighty percent of young people that were surveyed feel that life has meaning and purpose. But fewer than one in three would attend religious gatherings other than worship services on a regular basis. Yeah, and I think this was one thing that just Joshua Packer guy, who's the CEO or director or whatever of this mm-hmm. research institution, he was saying. That's something that is alarming to like churches and kind of this ministry paradigm we've been working mm-hmm. from for a long time. But it's something we have to pay attention to is that people like just young people going to church. It's just it's not happening. Yeah. Um, but I thought this was interesting. Seventy one percent consider themselves to be at least slightly religious. And that's a lot. But f- only 44 percent say attending religious services is important. And 55% say having faith in a higher power is important. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, to me, that's interesting. 71% say they're at least slightly religious. But it's just this practice of attending religious services is what – it's only at 44%. It's not that high. Right. Um, and, and, the, and the part where it gets 
complex then is that, you know, these young people that do affiliate with a religious tradition, 20% of those, though, they are they define themselves as not a religious person. Um, so, again, it's this it's a super high suspicion of anything relating to the church as an entity. But as far as wanting to rule out, um, you know, I think this is I think this is a generation that is actually working out of what Charles Taylor calls subtraction subtraction stories, which led to exclusive humanism and scientism. Um, which like is away that, from it, you mean? Yeah, yeah. And so, well, I think this this is actually yeah. So I think this is moving in, which it could be called a more postmodern term, which is more of an enchantment of the world. Um, and so I think you know one other thing that they were saying in that interview is how this actually could provide a much more robust mission field, if you will, than modernism ever did. Um, because, yeah, because there is a affinity towards being mm-hmm. right. religious. They recognize that there is more to life um, than simply scientism or what can yeah. be empirically or proven. They're just suspicious of the ways that we've so far right. presented it to right. them. Which, and, and that, like, I would want to defend that a little bit. I mean, you think of the amount of scandal that, that this generation has seen in every institution, yeah. the sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic Church, in the Southern Baptist, um, even in, you know, the Mennonite Church. They have been riddled with these. It's been from the top on down. It's, there's, you know, it's a president who's been involved with that. And they're seeing not only that, but they're seeing, um, you know, a time when we're wrestling through racial trauma and, mm-hmm. and tension and... Um, and, and I think also key is how they perceive those who should be the wise authority figures right. dealing with these hard subjects. This was, I think of all the, the things that I've seen, this was the most striking statistic to me. Um, the question was how young people perceive the way adults engage politics. Yes. 35% say considerate and inviting. 65% say adults are aggressive, dismissive, mm-hmm. and disengaged. Yeah, and I, I don't have the data right in front of me, but they're also saying that— they do. They feel that adults do not give them any credit when talking about politics, and yeah. they assume they know less than what they do, um, or that it's kind of this understanding um, where it's obvious for for this generation. The data was very clear that they appreciate when things are met with when a complex issue is treated at a com- as a complex issue mm-hmm. with nuance, with trying to understand both sides and reason a way through it, um, instead of setting yourself up. Um, abrasively. Yeah. Aggressive, dismissive, and disengaged. That does not work with this. You know, just kind of the picture this is painting for me, it almost seems like Gen Z is not to say they're not concerned with these issues, but they're not really interested in elbowing their way up to the top Mm -hmm. where they're going to have the power in traditional institutions to make these changes. They're just like, forget it. Like, we're, we're just done, like, with that way of doing things. And so, I mean, I've also heard them really characterized as the generation who wants to heal things and pull the pieces back together. But it'll be really interesting to see how they do that. And it, the world is, you know, in 20 years or, or 50 years, once once they've been the ones who have grown up, how they'll have put the pieces back together. I mean, things might look a lot different than they do now. That'll be that'll be really interesting to see. Yeah. And um, we've got to kind of close out here, but the the research kind of ends with trying to um, identify what it is that w- I say we, but I'm not even really, I'm still kind of almost in that generation, but what the generation above generation Z, the model for them to follow to reach this, they're mm-hmm. going to have to be adaptive. We're going to enter in a new framework than we did with the millennial generation. Uh, but they, they identified five dimensions of what they call relational authority and the five dimensions are listening, transparency, integrity, care, and expertise. Because I think it was 80, what was it, 89%, 83% of young people say they are more likely to take advice from someone who cares about them. So they're not as big on like expertise as much. It's like if you hear yeah. them, like hearing came up common theme all throughout this of what they're looking for. And so that's this listening part, being curious about, being engaged in remembering what another person said. And that goes back to what we were talking about with politics. Like you hearing them out, pursuing them, yeah, 
on what they're thinking about and how they're making sense of politics. In in the inter- in the interview, Joshua Packard, he has a PhD. He's you know has a doctorate degree. He said he struggles to make any one of his students care about that. He said they don't care that I have a PhD. Mm-hmm. What they he said they'll only listen to me once they know I care about them. Like right. once it's relational, then they'll listen to what I have to say. The fact that I have a PhD behind my name, they don't care. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was interesting. And it, yeah, I thought it was. You know, two of my thoughts coming away with what they talked about relational authority, because one of the main themes they press in that is that there needs to be solidarity. This identifying with um, in sameness, but then also difference because of how much um, diversity is prized among Generation Z. Um, And so, you know, I thought it was interesting talking of relational authority. It has to be rooted in relationship and solidarity and not in position statements, mm-hmm. um, which I think would be more of the modern approach. Um, right. We will make this position instead of entering into a conversation with you. Because I think when they see that, they see care, they see um, bravery, even in a little bit, and also that there's a certain level of respect that I will hear you out and that you have something to say to me. Um, so I think, yeah, just being humble and aware of what I call epistemological boundaries um, or like the boundaries of knowledge. Um, I found that mm. seemed to be a mm. subtle theme underneath a lot of um, what was noted in this data in that coming with humility and not, um, not, I don't know how to explain it except for coming down on them instead mm. in solidarity with them in the struggle to make sense of life yeah. amidst the chaos of racial tension, social action, institutional scandal, et cetera. Absolutely. Under the care um, kind of portion of this, 87% of young people say they trust adults who take time to foster relationships. And 81% of young people say they will trust someone whom they care believes about them. Mm. So for Gen Z, it seems like (laughs) it doesn't really matter what you've accomplished, what degrees you have, what position of authority you have. It's if they think that you care about them, if you've, they, if you've taken time to foster those relationships. And I think that's, maybe that's also, you know, maybe that comes from a generation who's connected to everyone all the time, but really just hurting for that actual face-to-face relationship mm-hmm. of someone, like an embodied presence who cares about me. Yeah, That might be the way that we, we reach them instead of getting them into church. Yeah, because 50% of Gen Z says... No one understands me. Mm-hmm. And um, so wor- working through those five aspects of relational authority, I think, could be a really good start at a way forward of how to interact with with Gen Z. Um, that is about all the time that we have we for today. We are out of time. Um, what do we have coming up next week? Episode 7. Yes. We don't know yet. We created the Google Doc today, though, so... Things okay, will start. Like we happening. had some topics. We're, it looks like we have some Dr. Seuss. Yes, these are all potential, and maybe the South Carolina death penalty. Yeah, there's some interesting things about potential firing squad yes. for the death penalty. But um, yeah, thanks to the listener who gave us a question. If you guys have questions or things that you've been thinking about, things in the world that have been revealing themselves to you, let us know. We'd love to think about it with you and talk about it. Thank you guys for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>